Hey, everyone. Today, we are so excited to have Ashley Selman, registered dietitian, back to talk to us about how do we set up intuitive eating practices in our family. Intuitive eating is a way of looking at food that is rejecting of the diet culture and really honors your body. And she talked to us two weeks ago, which I thought was really interesting about the dividing line, dividing between my body and my children's body. And they get to choose what they're putting in their mouths, which by the way, rocked my world. So if you're interested in understanding more of it, or if you're interested in the hows of implementing intuitive eating in your home, listen to this podcast. Ashley is a genius as always. We're so glad you're here. Thanks so much. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? (laughs) Yours. (laughs) Let's walk through this together. Welcome to Podcast Therapists. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm with Amanda. And guess what? We have a superstar again today that we've all been waiting to have back, Ashley Selman. Welcome back, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Y'all, we are so excited to have Ashley come back because we already told you we think she's a genius. And we also, I hope you listened to her podcast. It was two episodes ago. And it was about a primer on intuitive eating. And now she's coming back today to give us the actual how-to implement intuitive eating into our home. And what you're going to hear is me and Sarah asking a lot of probably uninformed questions about how do we actually make this work. The last time Ashley came and talked about this, pretty much our whole staff was like, well, I'm already doing this. How do I, how do I backtrack on this move that I've made as a parent? And how do I backtrack on this move? And Ashley totally normalized all of that. And I'm sure we'll totally normalize all the questions that we asked today. So we are ready, Ashley. Please give us the 411 on ways to implement intuitive eating in our homes. Okay. Hi again, and thanks for having me back. Let's see where to start. We we talked last time about the division line, and mm-hmm. I think maybe that's a good place to sort of pick back up and talk maybe practically about what that looks like. As a refresher, the division line is the idea that parents' job Their responsibility is to buy, prepare, and serve food. Once that job is done, their job is essentially over. And then it's the child's right to their own body to decide what they're going to eat, how much they're going to eat, whether they're going to eat of those foods that have been served. So we talked about that some last time. So if you haven't heard that first podcast, I think it's helpful to listen to it. So if we pick up from there, there's there's a few important extra components to that. So one, the division line goes both ways, meaning that it's not the parent's job to then sit at the table and try to get peas into their kid's mouth. It's the kid's right to decide whether or not those peas look safe, interesting, appealing, tasty, if they're interested in having them. But it's also then not the kid's right to say, I don't like these peas, go make me something else. So I think that that's a really important point because a lot of families get stuck in the picture of, well, my child won't eat anything except these few foods. So I just make these few foods over and over. 
And that is a sign that the division line has sort of gone askew in the other direction where the child is then dictating everything that's happening. So really giving parents the autonomy to, you know, know about nutrition and know about the importance of offering a variety of foods and meeting all the different food groups and having, you know, new and interesting things around, but also some things, you know, consistently there that, you know, your kid is typically going to eat. But then also when your child says, no, I don't like that. The response is not, okay, well then I'll make you something else. The response is, okay. So you feel like you're not interested in eating that right now. There's all of these other foods available that you may choose from. Then parents knowing again, back to what we talked about last time, that the body's got this. We don't need to figure this out for it. It's got its on its own so that we can be confident that let's say you have a dinner where one of your kids is not eating very much. You don't have to panic about that because your kid is following hopefully their internal cues about how hungry they are. And they will probably be really hungry for snack time or they'll be really hungry the next morning. And so if you pay attention to both kids and adults who are intuitive, their hunger patterns are quite variable. And they'll have some days where they're eating a lot and some days where it feels like they're not as hungry, some meals where there's more, some meals where there's not. That's all very, very normal. So as parents, we get to sit back and trust that they've got it. We don't have to get in their business, but then we're also setting boundaries so they're not making the demands of us. Can I ask a question about that? Absolutely. Okay. So last night we had beef stew and salad for dinner. It was yeah. actually great. Robert and I really enjoyed our healthy and I, and Robbie, my youngest and I made the salad dressing. I really felt like an accomplished individual. And of course I knew that none of my children would eat either of these things. Right. So am I essentially supposed to be serving like beef stew, salad, and chicken nuggets? And that's our dinner. And we like place it out all together, knowing that they'll eat the chicken nuggets. Or what does that look like? Well, it's funny. Remember when we first talked about what we might call this? And I said that one of my old titles of a talk similar to this was Beyond the Chicken Nugget. Yeah. <laughs> a great question. So, uh, a couple practical tips and then sort of getting to the answer. For meals, I really encourage parents that there should be four to five food options at a meal. And so, beef stew is not one option necessarily. So, what I mean is like you're having a protein, you're having a carbohydrate, there's a vegetable. There might be a fruit, a fruit salad of some sort. Maybe there's cheese or there's a glass of milk. There's something that's sort of representing each of the different food groups, which is representing different tastes and textures and nutritional content, right? With smaller children, it's very normal for smaller children not to like to eat complex foods, whether that is particularly flavorful food or food all mixed together right? Such as beef stew and salad. It's very normal for kids not to be like, that looks really good. I want to eat that. You still make it because it's what you and Robert, for example, wanted to have, but you also think about it as how could I break that down to make that more presentable and appealing to my kids? So you might make the beef stew and then you might actually take some of the beef out and put some pieces of beef on a plate or on a bowl as an option. You may take some of the potatoes out and put it on a plate or a bowl as an option. You literally sort of deconstruct the stew so then they can eat it as individual pieces. Some kids like broth, so they might eat a bowl of broth without the chunks in it, but they might eat the chunks separate from the broth. 
you might be lucky and have a kid who's like, yum, beef stew, yay. Right. And here you've got a five-year-old who's chowing down. So part of it is that you're kind of understanding your individual kid's experience with food and knowing whether or not they're going to just jump right for the more complex mixed together things, or if you need to deconstruct it some. I don't recommend that parents then make a completely separate option for the kids. Gotcha. Because I think that that sets them up for, well, mom will just always make me chicken nuggets. So I'll just wait for the chicken nuggets. Within the four to five foods, let's say that you're offering for a meal. Another practical tip is you're trying to pick two, three-ish things of those options that you're generally pretty confident your kid's going to eat. So you don't want to sit down and be like, here's all the things you've never tasted. You will never taste because you don't know what they are. That's just not fair. So we're setting kids up for here's some options. I know you typically eat these things. So you can feel safe. Part of, you know, the important part about eating is that food feels safe. And then maybe one of the things that you're offering is something that your kids sometimes eat, sometimes doesn't, right? And in this particular instance, that might actually be the beef stew altogether, for example. And then maybe one is something that they've never seen before. So maybe they've never had a particular dressing or they've not had seeds on their salad. And that might be something that you're offering. They may not touch it. And that's normal. A lot of kids have to see food multiple times before they'll even touch it, much less eat it. (laughs) And a lot of kids have to see it multiple times. They have to see other people eating it and enjoying it before they'll try it. And then they may still be unsure. So then they need to see it more. The longer food is being repeated, the more normalized usually that food becomes. Great. That's helpful. Amanda, are you going to serve stew now for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a couple of days in a row? Is that the plan? Probably if I would have <laughs> cleaned it up last night, I accidentally <laughs> left it out. So now the answer is hopefully no. <laughs> oh, I've never, ever, ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me neither, Amanda. But actually, here's what I can't do, which is what my kids want me to do, is take the croutons out of the salad and, and give them a plate of croutons. I'm not mm-hmm. going to deconstruct that for them, I don't think. Yeah. And maybe I'll take yeah. the carrots out for them. Yep. Yeah. And think about it too, especially in that meal, for example. So if they're not comfortable eating the beef stew, there's really not a carbohydrate that is there that they feel comfortable eating. And so the croutons basically are it. Mm -hmm. So if you had, you know, if you were thinking of a meal that had pasta with it, instead of pasta being all mixed together in like a complicated dish, but there was like the components to go with the pasta and then pasta was separate. And then there was salad with croutons. They might be less inclined to be like, I just want to eat all the croutons. Can you pour the croutons in a bowl? Because there's a carbohydrate option there instead. Yeah. And another, another last thing to say about that is remember, and I made this point last time, like we're designed to experience food pleasurably and, and carbohydrates are our energy source. So it's very, very normal and totally okay for kids to be like, croutons are really good. They're salty and they're crunchy and they're a carb and, they taste good and I like them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So can we actually talk about that piece is the mm-hmm. kind of how do we, cause one of the things I hear parents and I kind of stress out about is that it's difficult with my own stuff because I'm a human being in the world um, to watch my kids put tons of carbohydrates in their mouth before they've eaten vegetables, right. Or anything like that. So how do we set our homes up for a way that isn't going to be judgmental about what they're putting in their mouths. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's a great question. It's a really good question. I'm not surprised that people have questions about that. A few different things come to mind. So one, again, a little bit of the sort of underneath backstory. We genetically have a, a growth sort of determination for us. At the you know, point that we're conceived, we have a basic sense of how tall we're going to be and what our safe weight range is going to be. It's often sort of called set range. I think of it as safe range. It's the space where our brain knows it's designed to be and it kind of quiets down. Keeping in mind that kids, that's all programmed in for them. They don't have to think about it. So they're following, again, their hunger cues and their fullness cues, which are designed essentially over time to get them to that ultimate range. And when we track kids on their growth chart, that's why we're tracking them, because we want them to grow really consistently. So after about the age of two, kids are going to be on a growth track for both height and weight that is supposed to stay consistent. So side note, if something deviates from that, it's usually a sign that we've got a problem. But we want it to stay consistent. There are going to be times where your kid is going through a growth spurt. And when they're going through a growth spurt, carbohydrates are a very, very easy source of fuel. Again, they're palatable. They are easy to get down. They're good you know, things to add with other things. And kids' taste buds are different than adult taste buds. So children have taste buds that make foods taste more bitter. So vegetables do oh. taste more bitter for children than they do for adults. And eating a whole bunch of broccoli is not really going to do anything to help a child's body grow to their growth potential compared to if that child is actually eating the macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, fat. They need the bulk. They need the big stuff. The body is amazingly good at being able to find these little nutrients in all kinds of places. So if you haven't seen your kid eat a piece of fruit in three days, you don't have to panic about that. Those, those nutrients can come from other places. Same thing with vegetables. Like we're just not designed in these early years, especially for that to be our primary place that we're getting nutrients from. So that's first and foremost, the place to stay of like, I don't need to freak out because this might actually be very, very normal for my kid. The second thing about that is it is a misconception that eating a lot of carbohydrates makes kids gain too much weight or makes them fat. And so part of it is that we have to stay in the space of making sure that we're keeping our own very learned cultural disordered eating patterns out of the dinner table with our kids. We as adults, so many people don't know how to relate to these foods anymore. But again, as we were talking about last time, we want our kids to be able to learn how to relate to them normally from the get-go. So you have these foods, they will eat these foods because we're designed to eat these foods, right? Like my great, 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 whatever grandmother out in the forest was not like, oh, goody, I found fruit. I don't think I'll eat it because I'm trying to slim down, right? There's just like no part of that that evolutionarily, biologically makes any sense. So we stay in the space of knowing our kids are designed to regulate, they're designed to grow to their genetic potential, and if, if we can keep ourselves out of it as much as possible, they will do just that. I mean, I think, Amanda, I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like this is that what you just said is such a huge part. I mean, the anxiety as a parent when your kid is young around food is usually pretty big. Food and sleep, right, are the big mm -hmm. anxiety provoking experiences. Mm -hmm. And then as we move forward, we absolutely, you know, kind of parent in our own blueprint. So we are 
providing food and education about food in our, in our own life experience. And that can be so hard to undo or recognize. And it takes that part alone takes a lot of work, I think. And so I I really, again, kind of want to just stop for a second and encourage parents to really take a deep breath, kind of look at themselves, look at kind of how they're, they're, what they're putting on the table, how they're working through this and be really okay with the fact that you know, for generations, we have not done a good job of helping parents through that that part of the equation mm-hmm. at all. So, mm-hmm. and I'm saying this really for Amanda and my benefit uh, because we have made all sorts of mistakes as a parent around food. We've talked about it. I mean, we met with you that first time that you talked to our staff, and afterwards, I think Amanda and I and a couple other people had to debrief for like, oh, like you know, it's why very emotional stuff. Yeah, it, it is. It's tied to emotion. It's tied to family. It's tied to memory. It's tied. And I'm a trauma, you know, provider. I do a lot of trauma work. Talking about food, feeling safe, like mm-hmm. food factors into a lot of trauma stuff. So it's really, it is really important again that we that we kind of really lean into telling, you know, again, saying to parents, like, it's really okay. If you haven't been doing this, it's really okay to make a change now, no matter how old your kid is. My dream is always to work in a, a pediatrician's office or, you know, work in an OB office, which I've consulted and OB practices. And it was great. I got to talk with women when they were pregnant. We got to have these conversations. Then preparing them for what, what do you do and how do you start these things from the beginning? And my mind, that was where I wanted to put my intervention. That isn't an option currently because of all kinds of things. It's just not a service that we provide, which is really unfortunate. I wish we did. And so the message is like, this is really complicated stuff and we bring all of our own sorts of things to it. And I want to encourage all parents that no matter what they're bringing to it, they can separate that from their kids' interaction with their food. So the division line, another way of thinking about it is, you know, these are the the practical applications of putting food on the table, but we're also thinking about it in terms of I'm leaving my emotional relationship with my body and food, not on the table. Like that's in another room right now as we're eating. I'll go back to that later and pick it back up and talk with my therapist about it and talk with somebody who has familiarity in these issues. Um, I'm going to leave it in the other room and I'm going to teach my kid how to trust their body. There's an amazing book that's called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which sounds really intense, but it's actually quite approachable. And a lot of it, a lot of things she talks about in there are how mothers can have these really positive conversations with their daughters, even if they don't have those positive conversations with themselves and their own bodies. Yeah. We can do it for our kids, even if we're still struggling with it for ourselves. So one of the things when I hear you talk about it practically, I I mean, it is a pandemic and I'm a working mother. And even, even though my kids aren't out of school for COVID, they are out of school for snow. They've had six days of school for the past like six weeks. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the energy and time that it takes to kind of make this happen feels overwhelming to me. And I'm also really motivated to do it. So how do you talk to parents about that, Ashley? And and what are tips and tricks to make it more seem more doable? Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting for me is that the, the reality when people are practicing working with food in this way, it's not stressful at all. 
And it's actually not time consuming. I mean, the, the, the comment I make to my clients, you know, whether it's working with parents or it's working with my eating disorder clients is I can't take away the fact that you're still going to have to go to the grocery store and buy food and like prepare food. Like that's something I can't fix for any of us. But what we're doing is we're taking out the intensity around the food. We're taking out the battles around the food. We're taking out the negotiations and the, the drama. And that makes it just so much easier. Now, that's not already currently how it feels in the family around food. Like, that's okay. That just means that there's things that we can do. It is true that getting to a place at that point where it feels easier is a little bumpy, right? Like, you're going to have to essentially change how you've been doing things. And you're going to have to go through that transition. Your kids are going to have to go through that transition. Um, As I said last time, it takes patience. It takes consistency. But you do get to the other side where it's just, it's not, it doesn't feel complicated and you're not stressed about it, which I think is, you know, in in regards to this food conversation, it's this whole other layer of stress that parents are carrying around that they really actually don't have to be. So to ask a question that I think people listening might ask is Mm -hmm. you're saying we don't have to be, I don't actually believe what I'm about to say, but I think some of my clients might. So you're saying like, we don't have to be concerned about food yet. I know that to be successful in this world, my kids have to look a certain way, whether it's, you know, athletic performance or it's the way their peers judge them or the way they're going to be perceived when they go to a job interview. So what about that, Ashley? Yeah. Again, my favorite things, right? So the again, the body is designed to grow to a certain genetic blueprint. The body is also designed to be very well. The body is constantly trying to be in balance. It knows exactly what it needs to be, what it needs to do to be in balance. And when we're in balance, when we're in homeostasis, we're designed to thrive. When we're not, when we're dysregulated, we're designed to try to regulate ourselves. And the extra amount of energy and stress that that puts on the body to try to get back into a state of regulation and balance is enormous. The body is not designed to look bad, if you will, to use like a lack of a better word. So this sense of, well, if I don't somehow control what my kids are doing, they will end up in this particular body and then nobody will love them and they'll die alone in a forest, right? Which is essentially what all of our like primitive brains are coming back to. Like, I just don't want to be alone in the forest. It's not going to go super well. That doesn't actually happen. So consistently what happens when we work with families or when I work with my clients, weight regulates, we steady. We then know how to feed ourselves, not only intellectually, we have understanding about food, but again, the body's not designed to overeat. So this worry that we, by not controlling it, we're going to end up somehow in a body that is going to be shunned is not actually what happens, right? Because the body is not designed to be out of balance and to be gaining weight for some reason that's unnecessary is also an indication that the body is not in balance. That's an indication that something is wrong. So that's also another piece we don't have to worry about. I One of my favorite sort of examples of this, I had a friend Many years ago, and we, my middle son and her daughter were born about a month apart from each other. And around a year, she came to me and she said, I'm totally freaking out. My pediatrician is freaking out. My pediatrician is telling me I need to put my one-year-old on a diet. 
I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> like, just let's pause. And I said, come over, let's talk. And she came over and her daughter at a year was 33 pounds. It's just like a, a relatively larger baby at 33 pounds. And I'd seen this girl eat and I knew the family and I had done some coaching for this family with their son. I was like, let's go through it again. Like, let's just talk it through. I said, I want you to do me a favor and I want you to see if you can contact either your parents or your husband's parents and find out if any of them by any chance have a growth chart from when you guys were little or you remember anything about how you guys grew as kids. Guess how much the father weighed a year? How much? 33 pounds. 33 pounds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this kid is now six something foot tall. Like she's just like long, 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 long. Wow. There was absolutely nothing wrong with her. And she knew exactly how to feed herself. She was feeding herself based on what the genetics were saying. So I think that's a really good story of like, we can take a breath here. Now, the cultural part is an entirely different conversation, right? It's an entirely different conversation. But the growth part and the whether or not we have some role in trying to shape like how our kids' bodies look so they're going to be okay is almost always going to backfire. So I know after we met with you, and I'm saying this as a parent, not as a clinician, Mm -hmm. I literally went home and I started thinking to myself, like before I would say anything out loud, is this my issue or is this nice that is healthy and good for my family to say out loud? And I have to say, I have to admit, like I am actually the worst eater in the family. So I have my family jokes. I have the palate of an eight-year-old, so I could probably eat chicken nuggets (laughs) my whole life. My daughter, who's 17, she has an amazing palate and cooks and loves, you know, to food and different foods to try different things. Luckily, I had nothing to do with that. Like literally, like I could have definitely made her probably into eating chicken nuggets with me every meal instead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started realizing like that and, and not so much about body or things like that. Just, I just don't have healthy food messaging that I grew up with. So I just started slowing myself down. And I mean, there was a lot of times that I realized I had nothing to say that was helpful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was all just about me just kind of saying, okay, is this like, is this, does this have value in the room? No, not so much. I'm sure my family wishes I would do that about everything, but right now I'm just <laughs> focusing on food. <laughs> it's a great place to start. I love that. So a lot of it is just like, let me take a pause for a second. What's the purpose of the statement and who, who is the statement for? So if we feel like we have, we need to say something about the food and we're making a judgment or critique about the statement, most likely that is actually our own stuff. And that is our own worry. And we're projecting that worry onto our kids and our kids are just kids. They don't know yet that they're supposed to, supposed to in quotes, worry about these things. We don't want them to know that. We just want all food to be neutral and for them to have a positive relationship with it. So that's really cool. I think that's a very excellent practical tip to take home. I have clients where I I say like, if if it wants to come out of your mouth, you just put your hand over your mouth and you just walk yourself out of the room and speak it to the walls if you need to, and then come back when you're done because your kids do not need to hear that stuff. Well, and I think the idea is this, is that, and tell me if I'm wrong, Ashley, but the idea is, is that once we put an emotional component onto our kids' relationship with food, then they will start eating or not eating in response to our emotions, which then 
can then lead to their own cultural problems or their own disordered eating. So the more we say about it, actually, the more emotionally laden it becomes for our kids. And therefore, it can lead to more disordered eating, which doesn't make sense in our primitive brains necessarily. It's a a cultural phenomenon. Am I correct? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't, again, I don't think our ancestors foraging out in the forest were really labeling things other than like, we can eat this or we can't eat this. Yeah. I doubt the, that our ancestors were coming back and talking about guilt and shame around what they were eating. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then putting that into themselves. Right. So I think I made this point last time and if I didn't, I'll make it, but if we have labels and categories on food, these foods are good and these foods are bad then what can end up happening for people is that then when they eat the bad food, it's not just I ate a bad food is now I am bad. Mm -hmm. And so the food has emotion and then this negative emotion goes into the body. It is literally an embodiment of the sensation of I am bad. I did something wrong. My body is bad and I now need to fix it. But there was never anything wrong to begin with. We didn't break anything to begin with. So, yeah. Absolutely right. Yes. I am bad is shame. I mean, that is the definition of shame. And so most parents make such a concerted effort not to modify behavior using shame. And yet I think just not even realizing attach shame to food. Yeah. And I think, I absolutely think you're right. And I think it's worth shouting it a million times. None of this is intentional. We're not intentionally trying to go, oh, I'm I'm really going to mess you up with your food. Here I go. You know, like that's not it at all. We for, you know, a long, long time now have been very confused about all of this stuff. And it just goes from one generation to another. And, you know, for for a lot of clients that I work with, they, you know, moms especially, they have had lots of issues and they don't want their children to have those issues. So they're trying so desperately to prevent that in their kids, which conversation wise, it has a lot of merit to talk about what's been hard for you and why you don't want that for your child and have open conversations about these things, but giving the food, the emotional weight to carry all of that is not where we need to put it. And this, of course, you know, Sarah, you mentioned being a trauma therapist and doing this work, right? So if if the body is, if you think about it as, as sort of like the body is a physical container for holding all of the emotional experience, if we don't know how to be in the body, if we don't know how to relate even to the basic hunger fullness cues, knowing that we have those and we can trust them supports us feeling at peace in the body. And as we're developing in, in young ages, as we start to have more emotional depth, that allows us to be able then to trust that emotional experience. And just like hunger comes and goes, so does sadness, right? If I'm not overwhelmed by my hunger, like down the road, I learned I don't have to be overwhelmed by my sadness. It comes and goes too. And I can feel sad in my body and my body is capable of handling that for me. My body and I can keep moving forward. It will shift and change. So you can see where we end up down the road where we lose so much of the ability to be able to even be comfortable in our bodies and our skin, but also in our experience. Can I ask a quick question too? We're talking a lot about food. What about what the kids drink? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fluids are obviously important. <laughs> um, the So there's two things about this. One is, again, all kids are very different. 
in terms of lots of things. So some kids eat a lot. Some kids have high calorie needs. They have very fast metabolisms. It seems like they eat a lot more than other kids. Some kids don't eat as much. That's normal. That's totally normal. I've got three kids myself. They all eat completely differently. They all have from the very get-go when I put them in their high chair to feed them food for the first time. All three of their reaction to it was completely different. Still is. That's normal. The hydration piece is also different for everybody. Some people are drinkers. Like they are gulpers, drinkers, constantly need fluid, like every fluid known under the planet. And then some kids is like, have you drunk any water today? Right? So our thirst cue is really variable. I don't know that I know the science behind why that is, to be honest, but just be aware that part of what you might be experiencing is just variations in like some kids eat more, some kids drink more. Water obviously is the main thing that we're made of. And when we lose it, we need to put it back in. So that's that, like, that's not super complicated. Um, we need calcium. The primary place we get calcium is from dairy or from, you know, other types of milk that are calcium fortified. It's obviously a great source of protein and fat and calcium and vitamin D. Juice is one of those things where it does spike blood sugar, right? Like it's a pretty fast acting carbohydrate source and juice does not typically fill kids up. So the one space when we're talking about is a parent's responsibility to buy, prepare, and serve foods, part of their responsibility is also to have education about nutrition. And that if we are you know, bringing gallons and gallons of juice in the house, again, it's a very palatable food. Some kids are drawn to it, some kids aren't. But if they drink a lot of juice, they are less likely to eat food. And that's especially true in the younger years. As we get older, that shifts and changes some. So again, it's the kind of thing where you can determine whether or not you're bringing juice into the house and you have juice. If you're not bringing juice into the house, they encourage people not to say, we don't drink juice. Juice is bad for us. You just say like, I only have a certain amount of budget when I go to the store and these are the things I bought this week. I always encourage my families to blame it on budget and blame it on time. Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. I wish I had bought those, but I didn't. And I've already spent my money for this week. So maybe we'll put it on the grocery list for next week as an example. So you're kind of saying here, here's something that would happen in my house. I love ice cream. And I know if I have ice cream in the freezer, I'm just going to eat it all. So one of my strategies is I, I don't have, I do actually have a lot of ice cream in the freezer frequently. Um, but I try to not have the kinds that I love to eat the most anyway. My point is, is that even though we know that bodies are intuitive and they will take what they, what they need, part of how we do that is we don't bring tons of stuff into the house. Can you talk about that Mm -hmm. and how we, and how we shift what adults may or may not need with what kids may or may not need? Cause we do have different needs. Right. So I'll, I'll try to do the simple version because there's a kind of complicated answer to that question. The first piece of it is if if there's a food that you find you can't bring into your house as an adult because you'll eat it all, you have a disordered relationship with that food, right? Like that food. Okay, actually. Okay. Right? Like that food has, you've probably, I mean, typically what I find with these kinds of things, right? Not to pick on you because this is everybody, right? 
but that there's been some restriction of that in the past. There's been some rule where like, I shouldn't have this, or this is bad. I'm not supposed to have this food. I'm not supposed to have as much as I want, right? There's some kind of level there where typically when we have those rules in place, we then don't know how to eat the food normally. So if then we're then giving ourselves permission to eat it. We, we don't know when to stop. If it's available, we don't know when to stop. Because it's either we have the rule and the rules in place, but if we break the rule, we have to break it all the way, right? So that's something, if I'm working with somebody who is struggling with something like that, then we'll actually do, there's practices that we can do to try to get that to the point where you can have that in the house and like almost forget it's there, right? And that happens all the time for my clients. They're like, I completely forgot about this thing that I used to not be able to have in the house ever. Okay. So that would be sort of one side. Mm-hmm. But the other side is that as a parent, you're also kind of testing the temperature of where your family is with intuitive eating practices. So if you are in a space where you know if you have something in the house that like everybody's not going to be able to stop themselves, then you might take a break from buying that particular food until you feel like your your family or your child has gotten back into a bit of a regulation with neutralizing some of the foods. You're working then on, like Sarah was saying, I'm not going to make the statements about the food. I'm not going to say, we have ice cream, but we can't have it till Friday, right? Or we have ice cream, but you guys aren't allowed to have it tonight. So essentially, if the foods are in the home, then they should be available, if you will, Right. That doesn't mean they're available at dinner when you're like, here's dinner and your kid's like, I want ice cream for dinner. Because as I said earlier, that means the child's crossing their side of the line. But what it means is as a parent, if you have a five-year-old and after dinner, you're having a snack, you might say, we're having ice cream and strawberries for dinner. And you're choosing that that's what you're having for dinner. And then that child then gets to eat if they want ice cream, if they want strawberries they're choosing of those foods, what they're going to eat and how much of them they're going to eat. But the next night, when you go to have snack in the evening, you might say, and tonight we're having, I don't know, watermelon and cheese, right? It sounds random, but whatever. You're picking what those options would be. And then your kid says, well, I'd really like ice cream tonight. Instead, that's where I always say budget and time, right? You'd be like, that's such a great idea. Let's do that tomorrow night for snack. I've already prepared this tonight for snack. So this is what you're having. You're welcome to choose of these foods I've provided for you. And thanks for giving me the tip for tomorrow for snack that you'd like ice cream. And what age do you kind of give them free reign over those snacks? And and yeah, when they get to choose whatever snacks and how much they want to eat. Yeah, I find it a little bit different from family to family. I think it also depends on how many kids you have. Mm-hmm. So if you have older kids who are sort of already there, your younger kids are going to hit that a little earlier than maybe your first kid did. I have a 16, almost 14, almost 11-year-old. And snacks, they, they pretty much have full reign completely at this point. But meals, it's like, okay, this is what we're making for dinner, and here it is. Last night for dinner, we had a few things that – my husband made and I, I came up and I looked and I, my first thought was, I know my daughter's not going to eat any of this because she is by far my like least adventurous, like more particular child. Um, and so really quickly, I put together a like a vegetable Greek salad kind of thing because I know she'll eat that really well. And she did. And she came in. She's like, 
she whispers in my ear because I guess she doesn't want anybody to hear. I don't like any of these things. And I said, oh, well, you have options to all of them. And I just made this, right? Because I know you and I love this. And we sat down. And it was interesting because then she ended up eating bites of multiple of the other things that we had because there was no push and force. It was a particular thing we hadn't had before. Um, and because it was neutral, she had the freedom and the option. I wasn't pushing her to do it, but she chose to do it. Yeah. I hope that answered Absolutely. that question. Yeah. So Ashley, one of the things I noticed when you, like when you were telling that story was too, that when your daughter came up and said that to you, you didn't, you didn't say anything like, yeah, well, you have to eat something or there's, but you said, oh, well, I made this because we love this. Mm-hmm. Like it was very positive. Like there's no messaging around that. Yep. Right. Yep. We have this thing in our house. My, we joke that my daughter's like part hyena or something. Cause she would like, no matter what you had on your plate, she wanted to bite of it. So she, she was like, it was like a common phrase just to walk around and say, can I have a bite? Can I have a bite? So she's still, and still like in her house. Is she the one that likes to cook a lot? Loves to cook. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're, you're pointing out this really important point that like, it was part of her temperament. We talked about this some last time as well. It was part of her temperament that she was adaptable, Mm-hmm. approachable to new things. And you might have another kid who is not that way at all. Mm-hmm. I shared the story of my oldest being the one who like needed all the information anytime we did mm-hmm. anything. And he was my child. The first time I tried to feed him, he was like, uh, hell no. Like, I don't know what that is. Get it away from me. Like full hands, full head, like side. He did not successfully eat a bite of solid food. So other than breast milk until, until he was like seven, eight months old. Wow. And it was just part of his temperament. He's now 16 and will eat anything you put in front of him. Mm-hmm. So another really important point of this conversation, there's a couple things. So one, remember, so reminder to all parents, because it feels so like you're in it and you're going to screw it up royally and then it's never going to be fixable. We're playing the long game here. Our kids are going to be in our homes less time, fingers crossed, right? They'll move out. They'll be successful. They'll be able to like, do it on their own, they're going to be out and independent and on their own for way longer than they're going to be with us. So we're trying to instill these good habits. If they have a particular day where they eat more ice cream than maybe they needed, or they didn't eat a green bean, it's not going to be a huge deal. We're modeling for them what it looks like. We're giving them positive messages and we're giving them a chance to figure it out on their own. And I think one thing you taught me that was really helpful, Ashley, that's actually changed a lot of what's happening in my house was that one thing that my oldest son would do that would make me crazy is we would have a meal. He wouldn't eat a ton of it. And then he would make, he makes himself a full turkey sandwich every night at 9 p.m. And, and my husband and I, we would like, it would make us crazy because we would be like, eat the meal and you're not supposed to eat before bedtime. Right. Cause that's like a thing in our culture. And, yeah. and once you gave us permission to give that up, pretzels, hummus, turkey sandwich, mayonnaise, all of the things, all of it. Yeah. Yep. And, and that's just what works for his body. And now that yeah. I'm not worried about all of these rules that I thought I was supposed to be setting up for him, it has really improved our relationship. Exactly. That's exactly my point. It's been it beautiful. And it's so much less stressful for you guys, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's adorable. Like he's like coming in the kitchen, like preparing his little turkey sandwich. And like, I mean, it's adorable, right? (laughs) It is. is. And he's independent. He's doing it independently, right? Like it isn't me setting everything up for him. His body is telling him what he needs. 
And, and I'm going to have my husband, you all, I would, if you have a partner, I would suggest forwarding these last two podcasts to them because it is two adults in some houses that are making these decisions. And so one adult can have one attitude and another adult can have another attitude. And I think bringing this information to both adults might be really helpful for kids. It's very, very, very helpful if both parents are on the same page. Mm-hmm. So feel free to share this episode for sure. And the one, two episodes before both are around intuitive eating with Ashley Selman. Ashley, this has been again, so helpful. How can people find you? What are the services that you offer? Tell us more if people want to be able to learn more from you. Uh, sure. Thanks. Um, I'm in Charlottesville. I have a uh, private practice. I do all eating disorder work, disordered eating, working in an outpatient level. And also like m- one of my favorite things to do is to talk to moms and to work through these issues and families, or if you're pregnant, I think I have four clients right now who are in recovery and who are pregnant. And so it's, it's just sort of like the best because I get to have these conversations with them. They've done the work and here they are. My email is selmanrd at gmail.com. And my website has a few different ways you can get there, but it's nibblesandnuggets.com. That's sort of my blog link, but it gets to the website. Can I also say this would be like the perfect gift for a family who's expecting that's so cool. Like a consult with Ashley. Like, seriously, I wish that I had known so many of these things before I had children. That's the cutest idea. Yeah. I'm very glad I knew them when I having children. (laughs) But that is the cutest idea, Sarah. I think it's a genius idea is giving, you know, a one hour consult with Ashley. That would, that is a gift that genuinely would give, would last a lifetime. Absolutely. And what a gift to the whole family. Absolutely. Y'all thank you so much for being here. If you want to reach out to Virginia Family Therapy, you can find us at www.virginiafamilytherapy.com or follow us on Instagram. If you liked this episode, could you give us a like on podcasts on how you get your podcast and rate it? We would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Bye y'all. Bye guys. Thank you. Thank you.